I am Simone Cipriani and I am an officer of the United Nations. And I'm Claire Press and I'm a sustainable fashion journalist. You are listening to the Ethical Fashion Podcast. We can change the world. And this week our guest is Raffaella Iadice, who is, Simone? A very well-respected manager in the international service of the European Commission, first in the section devoted to international aid, now in the section devoted to humanitarian relief. We have got just me in the interview chair, Simone, but you're here for the intro. Why are we talking to Raffaella? We talked to Raffaella because she's one of the people I respect more in the environment of in the international organizations and also because together with Raffaella we have created the most innovative and incredible project of the Ethical Fashion Initiative. It's Raffaella who convinced us to work in Afghanistan and today we are in production in Afghanistan, we are exporting for Afghanistan, it's all because of Raffaella. So it's her vision that came true in that case. We thought it'd be fun to talk about you when you weren't there, Simone. Guess what we discussed? If you had to guess a story she told me, what do you think it would be? She must have told you the story about the embroidered hat. Oh, you know. Which was ex- <laughs> yes, I know, which was extremely ugly. And she said, why do you come here with this ugly product? But the point is that we sometimes use these products to show the skills and the potential for change, not to show the product in itself. But this is what you do when you work with people from the industry. And, uh, and It's a really, lovely story. <laughs> it's good. Raffaella is the reason why today we work in Afghanistan, in a very remote place of Afghanistan, and we have 3,500 women at work in a rural area. It's something unbelievable. Before we dive into episode six, just a quick reminder to hit subscribe in your favourite podcast app. And maybe you could leave us a rating and review. It helps others to find us. If you've got feedback, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Mrs. Press and the EFI is at Ethical Fashion. We love to hear from you. Also, if you like this interview with Raffaella Iudice and the previous ones with United Arrows, with Lee Edelcourt and many more, maybe you can help us spread the word. We'd love it if you could recommend the show to a friend. Raffaella, thank you so much for joining us on the Ethical Fashion Podcast. Hi, Claire. I'm so happy to be here with you. Now, Simone is absent, which is good because it means we can talk about him behind his back. (laughs) I'm looking forward. I'm going to do that. I'm also loving this opportunity because we're going to dispel the myth of the faceless bureaucrat because I feel like we always hear from politicians, but we don't get too many opportunities to hear from people working behind the scenes above politics in our institutions. So this is a privilege. Yeah, that's very good. Thank you. Really, I'm so thrilled to have this talk with you. I want to begin by just asking you to share with us exactly what it is you do. What's your job? I'm head of unit at the European Commission, the director general in charge of international cooperation and development assistance. It's called DEVCO. The European Union is the biggest provider of development cooperation and aid in the world. My unit in particular is uh, working on Central Asia, South Asia and Middle East and Gulf. In a nutshell, what do we do? We have a budget which is uh, devoted to development assistance with the aim of uh, reducing poverty, but also creating stability and responding to conflicts. We work together with the member states, European, but not only partner countries, 
and UN agencies, civil society actors with everybody, and also support our major targets, which are gender equality, human rights, climate change fight, and sustainability of the economy. In some cases, which uh, are uh, in, the, in the countries I deal with, one of also the aim is to just change, for example, the war economy into a peace economy. And that, I would say, um, quite interesting, but also a long-term vision, which yeah, will go... quite hard. And very hard, <laughs> yeah. But where does this money come from? So this is taxpayers' money that has been put aside to fund development projects in different countries, right? Sure. This is part of the European Union budget. We mm. have a specific budget line devoted to this. We have a toolbox of different instruments going from humanitarian aid to development and also first emergency. It's, uh, What does that mean? means that uh, you have different kind of challenges. You can go for uh, more strategic support uh, for different themes, climate change, environment, gender as a cross-cutting issue, but also specific projects which are adapted to the needs of a country. And uh, imagine you have a conflict arriving. What do you know? You have to intervene. So immediately you need the first aid and we use our instrument devoted for humanitarian aid. We support NGOs, uh, civil society, but also mainly, of course, the United Nations Agency. So we come in a country with that through our instruments. We try to go for life-saving, but then you also have a mid-term uh, moment where you have to come in with uh, the link between what is a mid- and long-term support and uh, the first aid. And that's where we come in with the instruments I'm managing on behalf of uh, my Directorate General. And uh, again, a very vast toolbox and, and actions uh, going from uh, direct agreements with the governments to uh, supporting organizations like the Ethical Fashion Initiative or helping uh, to prepare packages for returnees and refugees mm -hmm. uh, and a number of other issues. What's the aim of the EU here in providing this aid? Because I think if you don't know about how this all works, when you think about aid, you think about, I don't know, like how do we rush assistance to people involved in famine? But what you're talking about is particularly how... Do you rebuild war-torn places? How do you provide ongoing work opportunities or education, right? You have uh, different aims. First of all, you have life-saving and poverty alleviation. I think poverty alleviation is the aim for all development agency and uh, for ours as well. But at the same time, uh, uh, we do very much believe, and I do personally very much believe, that uh, stability can be also provided through an economic support. Sometimes, you know, in our head, we, we make this division between, okay, you have war, you have conflict, you have education, you have this... Everything is needed and uh, our aim is stability, wealth and uh, equality, uh, gender-based, uh, for example, activities are important for us. And you mentioned education. You know, education is one, of course, of the top priorities for us. We talk about uh, populations uh, which are mainly 
in distress, those that I do cover, but not only, we have also mid-income countries, but in my case, uh, where you have that education uh, and uh, can really be the basis of conflicts also in the future. But if you provide education, you make sure that all kids go to school, but you don't have an environment which is secure, an economy which is working, an investment which uh, gives jobs to everybody. Also, the education is uh, becomes useless, right? Mm. So we really try to have the full picture. And in, in the countries where I work, for example, Afghanistan, we try really to use any, all the kind of toolbox going from disaster preparedness to uh, climate change action, because we always forget that often these countries uh, like Afghanistan, but also countries like Bangladesh are also prone, not only very poor, but also prone to climate change uh, major events. Let me just ask you to list some of the countries that your unit is working with. I always start with Afghanistan and everybody, my colleagues say, okay, that's the the place you prefer. No, it's (laughs) not the place, but it's certainly the one who's taking most of my time with Iraq and Yemen. But at the same time, I do deal with Central Asia, which is another kind of work. That's where we come in with support to the governments for reform-oriented countries, like, for example, in Uzbekistan, where the opening, recent opening, is really a source of hope, of stabilization, and also has an impact on a number of issues. Uzbekistan in the past was known to be... uh, the bad student as far as the production of cotton was. Oh, my goodness. I am sure that many people listening will have heard the story of children picking cotton in Uzbekistan. But I can give you good news, you know, for a change. Is that uh, uh, all this has been discussed at length uh, with ILO and uh, our Uzbekistan partners. And the government has put real measure in place. So there's a recent report from ILO which says that there's no child labor anymore in the cotton field in Uzbekistan. But now most of the people don't know because we are such a bad bureaucracy sometimes that, you know, we always give the bad news and never the good news. So that's where you can see that the international community had a positive impact. We can measure there was a big mission of control and now they're out of that problem. So you see, something changes. You mentioned before using the SDGs or the Global Goals as the guidelines of which projects to support and where you want to put that money, right? We have now, as Europeans also since 2017, the new European Consensus for Development. What's that? So it's uh, really based on uh, how do we as Europeans, as important actors with our member states, put our priorities to respond from European point of view to the SDGs targets, because 2030 is tomorrow. For us, uh, time is running and I think everything is perfectly aligned, at least from a theoretical point of view. Now, the way you spell this out is not simple all the time because it's not that you go there and you just have a wishful thinking. It goes. You also have partners. You have to build a trust with the government. You have to have access to some areas. That's a huge problem in some countries I deal with, for example, in Yemen or I used to deal with Syria. So, yeah, it's quite a a bigger and more difficult picture that uh, you might imagine. It's not, of course, I do not decide. We are the bureaucrats there putting together with the help of a number of expertise and governments and discussions, a proposal to the Commission, which then goes to our member states and to the European Parliament. And once it's accepted, 
we go ahead and then we can write the check. <laughs> Give me an example of some of the projects that you might work on. We're going to get into the work that you do with the Ethical Fashion Initiative yes. in a moment. But give me another example of some of the projects or one of the projects that you've supported, perhaps in Yemen. Yeah, probably the project in, in Yemen is quite uh, fascinating. You know, people think that in Yemen you cannot do anything because they think, okay, you just have to give money and that's it and uh, give food and water. This is important. It's essential. But that's not what we do. We do have a project, for example, which supports women in the countryside in Yemen. And we are teaching them through FAO and other UN agencies how to increase the production of dairy products and uh, also clothes and all kinds of products that they can sell. So creating a kind of local economy, they sell through WhatsApp because they can't go out to the house. Yes, they? they have a WhatsApp uh, network. How interesting. And uh, with this project, for example, they learned how to prepare cheese that before was, uh, according to their tradition, uh, something which was not uh, really good. You should not manipulate milk in that area. And now they saw how to use it and how to sell it, how to produce. It's, it has a double effect. On the, of course, it gives revenues to families where often women are household because men are in war or they are not there. At the same time, it provides food because we have, as you know, a very, very important food crisis in Yemen. And somehow, Well, you know what, Hannah, let me just pick you up there. You say, as you know, I'm not sure that everybody does know this. We, before we started recording, Raffaella, we talked about the single story, the way that the media picks up certain stories but not others. I'm not sure that everyone listening knows about what's going on in Yemen. In fact, I think that they don't know. Well, that's the tragedy of um, the bureaucrat you have in front of you who travels in these places and then uh, goes home, looks at the TV and uh, discovers that 10,000 people killed in Afghanistan last year is not the news anymore. That's a tragedy when you go to Yemen and uh, you make quite a difficult trip, I have to say, to arrive there and you see kids really, literally, dying in the corridors of a very, very dirty hospital. And uh, you see this person looking at you and you feel really not mm. good. Mm. But mm. that's also what makes uh, my work and um, my life worth it. You also work with the Ethical Fashion Initiative. I wonder if you might tell us exactly how you do that, and particularly with reference to Afghanistan. Oh, yes, I love this project. You know, um, we deal with uh, a lot of partners, with UN, with, uh, with the others. But from time to time, you, your life makes you meet uh, people and projects that really have a, a, I don't know, they just strike you. Ethical Fashion Initiative has been working on Africa all the time, so they were not covering my area. One day... I was in Kabul and uh, somebody told me that uh, the International Trade Center, to which the Ethical Fashion Initiative belongs, was uh, preparing maybe a mission or a possible intervention there also in the fashion. So I was, of course, as I, somebody who loves fashion, by the way, in general, I was interested, but I like, you know. <laughs> Can yeah. I just stop you there? Seriously, this is another one of those moments where I wish that this podcast was in fact a video. Can you just describe what you're wearing? <laughs> I mean, you've got two mismatched earrings. 
Yes. Uh, what are they? They're amazing. Okay, this is uh, from an Indian uh, stylist, and it's my daughter who bought it for me. One, because she said you have to wear only one. It's a gold squiggle that reminds me of a sort of Alexander Calder <laughs> mobile with a turquoise bead on the end. And this one uh, comes from Afghanistan. It's a young girl who does it herself. And uh, when I'm there, I mean, she comes to the compound because we, for security reasons, we can't really go to her. And uh, I bought it there. But also this is from Kabul, you know. This uh, silk is done by women in Kabul. That's also from Zulaika, from Zarif. And uh, yeah, and yesterday I had the coat again from Afghanistan. Made by Zulaika. It's made by Zulaika. And that was my first coat or jacket bought in Kabul. It's, uh, yeah, with the purple and white stripes and everybody stops in the street when I wear it. <laughs> so you're in Kabul, you're quite obsessed with fashion and you hear that the Ethical Fashion Initiative is considering making moves into Afghanistan. Yeah, it was like a vague idea. Then I come back to Brussels and uh, among the different requests of uh, meetings, I have somebody saying that uh, this the founder of Ethical Fashion Initiative is coming and ask for a meeting. Have you ever heard of him? Um, I have to be honest, no. <laughs> Simone, sorry. <laughs> no. But okay, I meet him and I was ready to get the usual uh, partner asking for money, which is, I think, fair enough. And I see uh, this uh, extravagant uh, gentleman arriving with the two colleagues and uh, starting showing me a very ugly hat. <laughs> <laughs> that they brought from Kabul. He had never been in Kabul, Simon himself, and uh, trying to say that that would be good. Why did I meet him? Because we, are, we were preparing projects for returnees to Afghanistan. Now, you told me before that yeah. a million Afghanis are now returning or trying to return after 30 years in exile. Yes, there were uh, quite 800,000 already next, last year from Pakistan. At a certain moment, there was a big wave of Afghans coming back, but uh, some back after 30 years. So they come back to a country which is somehow not even their country anymore. We have also Afghans coming back from other countries, including from Europe, and now increasingly uh, Afghans coming back from Iran. This puts uh, this country, which is already under deep uh, tensions and uh, pressure, economic and also social, in uh, even a more difficult situation. And among the packages of uh, support we have, we have also re the, the reintegration of returnees. Along comes Simone with an idea to produce a particular hat in this particularly <laughs> ugly hat. <laughs> What did you say? The problem of the hat was not that it was particularly ugly, it was that nobody would buy. And if you want to create a job to the people, you have to sell what you produce. I was laughing because I felt very, very much at ease with Simone because he's full of enthusiasm. And it's also refreshing to see people who believe in what they do and not only asking money. So uh, I, I just say, listen, if you think you're going to sell this hat and produce jobs in Afghanistan, you're totally wrong. And I think you should come over to my place because we are having a party tonight for a number of partners and ambassadors who were in Brussels that day. And I'm going to show you what you can produce in yeah, Afghanistan. Yeah, from your own wardrobe. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> he came with other colleagues and I brought him and another couple of colleagues and I started opening my wardrobe and taking out the jackets, including the one I'm wearing today, by the way, and say, this is what you should do here. 
I think at the beginning. Just hang on a minute. So just yeah. rewind. You have been having these amazing clothes made for you by a woman called Zalika. Yes. Who has an amazing brand, which is called Zarif. Zarif, yeah. So you've actually been a customer of Zalika's, getting all these fantastic clothes made that you just wear in your life. And yes. everyone's jealous of them because they're amazing. They are amazing. <laughs> I wear them and I, I love them. And, you know... Like uh, sometimes I heard you saying, and not only, it's uh, it's nice to make campaigns like who made my clothes and then you go to big shops and just get things. I want to know who made my clothes. And somehow I'm privileged enough to be able to do that. So I just came back with from Tajikistan with another incredible Yeah, but hang on a kids. minute. You say you're privileged <laughs> enough. You're also a fashion adventurous because you're seeking this stuff out because you have great style and you love the stories of clothes. So you're there for work for other reasons, but you've also got a life and part of your lifeblood is to go and find the clothes. I mean, I know you. We're the same. <laughs> so you go to these places and you find the beauty. Yeah. So actually and- you were a gift to Simone because you had the closet full of stuff. <laughs> I'm... I think I'm really lucky, you know, because when you manage to go in this place, I don't go shopping around in Kabul, you know, you can't, but uh, I bring the shop to me. So I start, you know, even if uh, we have been 10 hours in a meeting, then I start saying, okay, ask, uh, I don't know, Zolaik or somebody to come. We want to see what she has. And sometimes, uh, for example, I have people who send me, you know, the textile via WhatsApp and then they just do it. It's all about WhatsApp. So these clothes have been made by Zolaika and we're going to hear from her in another episode. These clothes are done by Afghans as a start. And because of the project, she can increase the production and touch these groups of women, and not only, by the way, that uh, for us are really a target for what we said before, poverty alleviation, stabilization. And uh, I do believe that economic development is the only key at the end of the day of, uh, of the stability of the country. No jobs, no, no work, and uh, will just uh, decrease uh, even the stability of uh, Afghanistan. So something so humble as clothes, as a, I mean, delightful, but essentially just some cloth, a beautiful jacket, can actually change lives. It can. We have another part of this project with ethical fashion with uh, Jean de Croon that uh, you met yesterday, which is also uh, beautifully, uh, you know, uh, helping us in our targets. For example, when you buy a coat from Jan, you pay one year of school for a girl in India. So, okay, maybe somebody who's listening to us will say, oh, okay, that's so nice, you want to feel good. Listen, I will buy anyway the coat. So if my coat can, on top of that, pay for one school year, why not? And if I know that this is done by a woman, because of that, uh, can feed her two, five, three, five, I don't know how many kids they have. Average is quite high, by the way, in in my region. Well, I feel good. Yes, I do. (laughs) You told me a brilliant story about wearing your colourful clothes and then how that is a kind of communication tool, but also how people initially react and how they might judge you and then how it becomes a talking point. Tell us about Mm. a typical time when, I mean, you are essentially still a woman in a man's world in many of these environments, right? Yeah. But you're also one that's often in purple silk. Sure. Or colourful Afghani embroidery. Yes. And uh, I tell you, uh, sometimes uh, when I come, it's a men's world. My world is still a men's world, not in my institution where uh, you don't see so much or too much of the difference. Not now. When I started, I did. But I, I deal with countries where 
I don't really meet many women when I'm negotiating. Maybe the place where I meet the most women are is in Afghanistan, but in all the other countries, including right? in Central Asia, I often I have to sit in front, I don't know, 12 uh, very polite, very nice, but really gray men. <laughs> and gray as in they're dressed in dress dark. in dark yeah. and uh, serious. And I'm also serious, but I don't uh, dress in gray. I like my embroideries and uh, my red. I have my red hair and my red jackets and uh, I just basically love it. And I'm not going to transform myself in a man uh, just because I deal with money and financial and monitoring and audits and uh, tough negotiation in uh, war states. Has that made it difficult for you? Have you had to fight against stereotypes and the way that people perceive you initially? Difficult? Maybe not, because uh, somehow I ignored that. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to ignore when I was born, probably, um, the difference. But um, at the beginning, certainly, in particular when I was a little bit younger, but uh, even because of my maybe look a little bit eccentric, uh, sometimes you have people who start uh, not talking to you, but talking to maybe to your assistant because uh, he has a beard and uh, he looks uh, normal to them. But then uh, at, at a certain moment when we start talking about work and substance, I never really had a big, big problem because uh, most of the people have been respectful and nice and uh, fine. You make it sound easy, but I don't think it can be easy. I mean, you've been doing the work that you've been doing for 27 years. You say that you're still often the only woman in a room. It must take, I admire you greatly, because I think it takes some serious internal fortitude to be like, I'm not going to change because of you. I'm not going to come and disguise myself so that you take me more seriously or whatever it is. Yeah. Mm? I don't know if I'm more courageous or brave of anybody, but what I really don't like, let me tell you, is when I see these movies, there are many American movies on that, where you have these women, uh, you know, managers, and they have to dress like this kind of uh, uniform of this uh, short or whatever, blue skirt and blue jacket and everything. And I'm not like that. I'm not going to be like that. And it's okay. Mm -hmm. I never really... Maybe they suffer more than I do. You also because... said to me before we recorded that sometimes it served as an advantage. You said to me, sometimes I think they didn't yeah. see me coming. Certainly, I'm not going to give you the precise example. I have them in mind, but uh, I tell you a couple of times or maybe even more than that, they look at me and probably some men, they think so much that they are so better and superior that they don't see me coming in negotiations. And it helps. I want to punch the air. <laughs> <laughs> Can we rewind back to where you began? So your first job was in a hotel and you said to me that you thought that was the best school you could have had. You came from Italy. Yeah. Was it in Paris or in Brussels? No, in Brussels. You didn't really speak any French? No. I was always... Um, I have to start from the fact that I come from a family coming from the north and the south of Italy, which somehow are almost two countries. So already it was kind of a mixture between my father and my mother, a cultural shock, let's say. And uh, since I was a kid, I was always saying that I would work for the United Nations. I still have homeworks where at 10 years I say I want to go to work for the United Nations and help the poor. That was Did really... You? I do. Wow. And I still have it. And... Uh, yeah, let's say. Then I was quite a rebel. 
my poor mother was now still a rebel. <laughs> yeah, but my mother, she's not there anymore. But uh, I think I really gave her a very, very hard time. So I was a feminist in the south of Italy when we moved there and always complaining because I'm not going to do that if my brothers don't do it. I'm not doing too easy. And then at a certain moment, I decided just to leave home, which was quite of a scandal because we were, I would say, a bourgeois family and uh, quite wealthy. I mean, I had a busy life. So I decided to run away and came to Brussels with uh, my poor French. And uh, to be independent, I, I worked in an hotel, night shift, for five years. And yes, it's true, it was my best school, probably the most uh, important school of my life. What while did it I was teach studying. you? It taught me how to get into people's mind somehow. You know, when you see hundreds of people every week and uh, you start just uh, maybe profiling them, they were coming in and we couldn't... I was just opening doors, closing doors. It's not that I was doing, I don't know, which uh, very intellectual job, you know. But I could... I think after one year, I could understand if they were going to give us a tip or not, if they were Brits, Italian or anything, if they were rich, poor, fake rich, fake poor, anything. <laughs> I still, I think, benefit from that. You learn how to read people by taking the time to do it, but by the volume of people that pass you by. Yeah, and by the interest, because I like looking at people, you know. I can sit in a cafe by myself and just stay there and stare at people. It's nice. <laughs> it's like reading a book. You then studied political science, or while you were working, you studied political science. Yes, here, here in Brussels, and then i done a specialization in international relations. I also followed in Israel a summer course on uh, terrorism, which was... Uh, quite interesting because I, I was working there for five years in Jerusalem. Uh, yeah. You also worked in Cairo. Yeah, I was in Cairo for four years, including during the famous Arab Spring. So my family had to be evacuated. It, I was in Tahir Square on 8th of March 2011 when these women have been attacked, including the journalists. And I was demonstrating there on a private base uh, in my free time with uh, a number of um, Egyptian friends and colleagues, we've been, I would say, quite insulted at the time by these awful men. What have you learned from being in these conflict zones or places of high pressure where politics are making life very, very difficult for the people who live there? What I've learned, well, you know, I've been in places like Mosul just after the liberation from ISIS or many Wait. times. Yeah, yeah, it was... Uh, for our project, we have a well, reconstruction. Mosul is also one of, and I met uh, exceptional people. And uh, the last one, I think I mentioned to you a few times ago, and uh, I think she, she will remain in my heart forever. It's Nadia Murad, the Nobel Peace, the Yazidi woman, with whom I, I'm still in contact now. What I learned is that uh, we are all human beings, and it looks like you know a sweet uh, kind of propaganda thing, but. Uh, there's no difference in good and bad people, depending on the latitude. You can be in Mosul, you can be in Afghanistan, you can be in Brussels, you can be good, bad. But, you know, at the end, when you talk to people and when they see that you respect them, they respect you. The eyes of the people can say more than any language. So It's common humanity. It's humanity. Obviously, some of your job is sitting behind a desk. <laughs> but also, yeah. some of it is being in places that, you said to me before, some of your colleagues would rather not go. 
oh yeah, for example, in Yemen, uh, there was not really the queue to go. <laughs> when I went there, I think I was the first one uh, from the development agency and not humanitarian to go there since the war. The little girl that wrote down, I want to work for the UN in a book when she was a kid. Mm. To me, that speaks of just wanting to be someone who contributes to the common good. I mean, it's purpose, right? I, and I, Simone has it too. I want to believe that what I do as a human being, as an individual, is at least positive for some people. I want to believe that we do the difference. I'm lucky enough to have the job I wanted to do when I was a kid, to work in an institution which has value that I share. So I never really go to the office saying, okay, I'm just a bureaucrat and sit. No, I'm a person who does something she believes in. And that's, you can do anything. I don't, you don't have to work for an institution. You can do anything as long as you believe your work is never work. And I do believe that, again, uh, if you save one life, even by your action, even if it's on my personal money, you, you really save humanity. And that's what I, I do. Even if my kids sometimes tell me, okay, but why do you have to go there? Why shall you do this? Well, I want you guys, and I say to my kids, and they are also now doing the same, I think, that we are all responsible for what we do. So... I want to see why we do a project. I want to see that people are really benefiting and mm. as much as I can, of course, I, mm. I'm just a human being also. Let's talk about some of the women who benefit most from some of these programs and why it's important to empower the women in communities. As the European Union, and uh, first of all, we have managed so far to cover, to use uh, the gender mainstreaming in most of the projects. And when I see, I was reading the report recently also in order to maybe give you some numbers, but 64% of our projects have very strong gender component. We are going to increase it even more. Women, now in my countries, I say my, but between brackets in the countries I deal with, having a very strong focus on women as a direct and clear impact on the economy, but also on the stability of the countries. Because these girls, these ladies, uh, first of all, are those who advise their husbands, their kids, their these mothers are, for me, the hope for a better future, for better men, because the problem of uh, sometimes uh, these societies is also the role of women is seen in a way that uh, we do not share. And the woman with some revenues has also more respect from uh, men. We often hear that when you empower a woman in a community, the impacts are far-reaching. This is just my opinion, and I don't have any stats to back it up, but I think that if you empower a woman, she's more likely to spend that money on education for her kids than potentially a man is. And, I mean, you know, so cut me down. That's what I reckon. Well, uh, it is the case. <laughs> and, you know, i give you an example which is uh, maybe not uh, very, very nice, but it's true, and that, again, in Yemen, our microloans, when uh, they are devoted to women and not to men, have a success story of 100% in Yemen. 100%. With, uh, we have a very good, we have a project which is called the ERI project with UNDP. And that's, uh, again, microloans for these small communities producing and selling the WhatsApp group I was mentioning earlier. Men, for example, in some cases, in some areas in, uh, in Yemen, use a lot of uh, cut, uh, which is a drug they chew all the time. 
And uh, some women with whom I managed to talk with the translator when I was there were telling us that kind of hiding in the corner to tell us that, you know, these men used, sometimes used to take the money just to, you, to mm-hmm. buy the cut and they stay there and uh, while they were working and uh, feeding the kids. So, uh, yes, I agree with you. You know what, it's an age-old story. And again, I'm, this is my opinion and I'm sure that people will write to me and tell me often say, not all men are bad, we know this. But it is an age-old story that, you know, blokes get the pay packet and spend it in the boozer. Women get the money and spend it on the kids. This is, I know it's a stereotype, but this is an old story and it has some roots in truth, I'm sure. We are in a world of stereotypes, so the good and the bad. And uh, I mind you, we did. I begin, like this one, but we did begin this conversation yeah. with the idea of smashing stereotypes, and that is something I fundamentally get behind and believe in. And I think that's actually what we need to do. We need to have more equality, more of a willingness to open our eyes and to see the truth behind the cliche. So I take myself back. <laughs> We'll go back. <laughs> Let's finish on talking about what listeners can do because I opened this conversation with you, Raffaella, saying we don't often hear about behind the scenes what goes on in our institutions and thank you for sharing your story. But what can we actually do? Because I think also we suffer from this feeling of distance, like we don't have the power. You know, first of all, I think it's a very important question, but more from a political point of view. Uh, When you see the debate that we have today in Europe, it's quite worrying. The idea of uh, these bureaucrats in Brussels are just uh, sitting there, getting a lot of money and doing nothing and bringing these refugees who are criminals in Europe. It's a little bit difficult for me to swallow because uh, the world is not that. So I would say, what can we do? First of all, uh, uh, preach tolerance. Understand that every person is a person and uh, you cannot judge people by the way they look. I don't want to be judged when I go in their countries because I have uh, red uh, hair, mesh and uh, black nails, as you can see. And uh, I managed to talk to them and I would like that uh, my people, my family, my friends here do the same when they see these people coming here. Uh, we have also the impression that they come here to take all our jobs and our money. And we often forget that uh, most uh, of these uh, refugees, because we are talking about refugees here, are just running away from war. What, what would I do if with my three kids... I were in a country totally destroyed. Mosul was destroyed. Syria, most of most of it, also has areas totally destroyed. I would also take my kids and try to go. I don't know to Australia to another country. That's what we did during the Second World War in many areas. So please don't forget your humanity. Then for the rest, we do our job, and uh, there are many good organizations and uh, also NGOs who do the best they can also. And uh, maybe we have the duty, those who want to, to support them, also financially, why not? But I think tolerance will be the most important thing. If you don't want to put the money, at least put the tolerance into that. We're talking about some pretty grim things as well as some wonderful possibilities for hope. But I just wonder how you deal with the suffering aspect. I think it's positive. You know, because when you go in an hospital, when you see what we call in a contract the beneficiaries, and you consider them beneficiaries on a contract and not human beings, you lose your humanity. And I'm not ready to stop this. I'm not ready to go visit people dying or kids starving, like I've seen in Yemen, and just say, okay, how many beneficiaries do we have? No, 
I want to cry still. And that's good because you still care. Yeah. Until I cry means that I'm doing the right job. Thank you for listening, my friends. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at ethicalfashioninitiative.org and we are on Instagram at ethicalfashion. Just don't shout because I feel like it's quite ah, okay. noisy. Okay, just the rest. Yeah, yeah, go on. I have the syndrome of the... Well, you have silent the, or shouting? <laughs> yeah, no, I have the syndrome of the presenter in, in an old Italian ballroom. Uh, ah. where I, <laughs> I love it. Because I used to be a waiter when I was in university. And the waiter, I used to work in a restaurant, which after dinner was transformed into a ballroom. So... It was fun. So did you say, and now it's time for the dancing? And now, adesso si balla. <laughs> and everybody, boom, boom. <laughs> Can you help spread the word and share our story with your friends on social media? Our mission is to work towards sustainable development and create long-term impact in the communities where we operate. Through extensive training and mentorship, We build capacity and enable artisans to produce for the international market. Through this program, workers are empowered and can lift themselves out of poverty. Not charity, just work. Mm-hmm.